Welcome to Spotlight Conversations with voice talent and DJ Donna Reed. Donna talks music and media from her sunny linoleum-free studio. Come on in. Thank you very much for being a part of Spotlight Conversations today. Thank you for the downloads. Thank you for the comments. I really appreciate it. Um, Took a week off. Now we're back. Sometimes I do that. But today is Tuesday, a new podcast, a new episode. Ernie Manus is my special guest. He is a host at Houston Public Media, 11 Emmy Awards, five Katie Awards, Houston Press Club Lone Star Award, Viewer's Choice Awards. He's funny. He's smart. He's brilliant. I'm so glad he's here today as my guest on Spotlight Conversations. Welcome, Ernie, and thanks for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. Houston PBS TV, I'm familiar with as well as millions of others, too. Tell me about some of the new programs that you're working on now. Well, it really changed a lot, as I think everyone's life did with COVID-19. And we were in the process of developing a new show. We were doing uh, more online broadcasting as we were moving into January a year ago. And then when COVID hit, everything changed. We shut down the studios. We had to move people out so that they weren't in, the same, in close proximity. Mm-hmm. If you remember back a year ago, which seems like a lifetime ago, we had to limit how we produced in-person video and we realized immediately that there was a need for accurate information to get out. Mm-hmm. And so it was one mid, mid-morning, and someone from the station came to my office and said, hey, could you go on air at 3 o'clock today and talk about COVID? And that was one year ago last Friday, so uh, beginning of March a year ago. And uh, we've been doing it every day since. And it's been a live show with call-ins and guests. We've broadened our topics a bit. But yeah, that's that's pretty much consuming just about everything I do these days. That first show, how did you get everybody in that you needed to get in to talk about all the things you wanted to talk about? Well, the funny thing was we knew so little. We knew that there was this virus. We knew it was out there. And we knew people didn't have the right medical understanding of it. And we hadn't even shut down the rodeo yet. We, we predated that by a couple of days. And we had our first positive case in the area. It wasn't even in Harris County or Houston, but we knew that, that that information needed to get out to people. And we didn't want people to panic. We wanted them to be educated about it. So we turned to uh, UT Health School of Public Health and Dr. Troisi, who is an epidemiologist there, because we thought you need to understand the virus to understand what it does. And coronaviruses are nothing new, but this one was the novel coronavirus. It was our newest one. And so she came on the show that day and just started taking live calls with me. And she is still regular on the show. She comes on all the time. She was just on a couple times last week. So she's still with us. She had just calculated, and I think she's put in over 340 public appearances or interviews over the last year talking about COVID. And the program is called Town Square. Town Square. Yeah, with Ernie Manus. And we always say with Ernie Manus, because if you go and look for it as a podcast, there's a lot of town squares. So it's the town square with me. That's the one you're looking town for. Town square with Ernie Manus. I have that. I'm, I'm listening to it. And now with COVID sort of, it's with us still. Vaccines are out. What's the future now with your show? Well, what had happened was we were, it was probably about mid-May when everything was happening with George Floyd. And I woke up the morning after the video was out and I was like, we need to talk about this. This is what's on everyone's mind today. Mm -hmm. 
So we shifted the show that day and we started covering what was going on with George Floyd. I ended up anchoring the George Floyd funeral here in Houston for NPR across the country that carried our live feed of it. And so that kind of shifted us a little bit and we started realizing this show can be more. It needs to be more. And we're not just one thing. We're not just worried about COVID or trying to sustain ourselves through COVID. Mm -hmm. We're a country and a community that's growing and changing. And we need to be on the cusp of all that and to help people through oftentimes difficult times, sometimes just curious times. So we started doing more racial justice. And then, of course, everyone got sucked into the political arena as Mm -hmm. we went into the fall. So we added politics to our show a lot more. And uh, we've continued to grow in that way. And so we always are trying to find a fresh approach, the newest information, what's happening, what's going on, and how we can um, be right there with the information the audience needs to know that day, which is great in theory. And you work in this business, so you know it's not great behind the scenes when you have producers Mm -hmm. trying to book your show Mm -hmm. and you get a new idea and you say, no, this is what we're doing and they have to change everything. Oh, yeah. But we're very current. Interviews with Ernie Manus on Houston PBS-TV. Tell me a bit about that program. We were on air for 15 years with that show, and um, that was my pet project. That was the program I loved doing. I had always wanted to do that style of show. We ended up having a 15-year run with it, 15 seasons of the show. And the concept was to have in-depth interviews with what we call notable personalities, You may call them celebrities, but we kind of broadened it out a little bit more than just celebrity. It was the chance to actually sit down and talk with these folks, unscripted. And the one thing that I was pretty insistent on was live to tape. And the idea behind that was when I was back in college at a university at Loyola University in Chicago, I had an editing class and I had done an interview with someone and I was editing the interview. And I got to a point of the interview where she was telling a story about something she had done, but she was mentioning her daughter. And I had never introduced the daughter as a character in the story. Mm -hmm. So I went through and I edited out and I took the plurals off words and I changed tenses and I kept the story the same, but it was no longer about them. It was about her. And when I got done with it, I realized once you start editing, anyone can say anything you want them to say. So that kind of started my whole belief in as often as possible, I like my programming to be done live or live to tape so that the audience truly gets to know who the person is we're speaking to and we're not interfering with what they want to say or how they want to say it. So the concept behind interviews was the guest, I'm mic and seated, the guest comes in, sits down, we roll tape. We go 30 minutes, I thank the guests, they leave. So you almost have every moment of our interaction on tape. And that was really important to me in doing that. And so we had quite a few guests and quite a few uh, memorable people over the years. It was, it was a great show to do. And it aired all across the country. I think at our height, we were on over 100 PBS stations. So it was great fun. In television, do they typically do that? Yes. For example, the... Uh, Harry and Meghan interview that just aired with mm-hmm. Oprah, mm-hmm. they shot that. That was uh, three and a half hours long, just about. And what you see on TV is about an hour and 20 minutes. So it tells you how much doesn't make it. Um, when they used to do the Barbara Walters specials, she would spend two days with the folks. And then you saw 14 minutes of the interview. So a lot disappears. And when that happens, you lose a lot of what they really want to say. 
and people rephrase things, people come at things differently. And you know from doing interviews, that often helps more than even the words they're saying is how they say them and how they group them. And so having the ability to present interviews unedited. Now, we cleaned up little things. Somebody mm-hmm. would cough or something like that. But we, the important thing for us was to keep the integrity of the conversation so the audience wasn't cheated. Never realizing we would get to a day where people would be chanting about fake news and not trusting the media and all of that. So that always made it even better for us because we can stand behind the work. And so many of those interviews are still out there on YouTube. This love of interviewing, when did it start? <laughs> okay, I was a little boy and my grandmother, I'm just going to give you an idea how old I am, bought me a reel-to-reel tape recorder. <laughs> really? And so I to carry it around with me and I would interview my mom when she was cooking. I would interview the kids in the neighborhood and I just kept all my little interview tapes. So it was something I I did from an early age, I think about five or six years old. And that led to radio. Is that where you first started? I was looking at your bio and trying to figure out where you actually started in broadcasting. Uh, This is a theme that you'll come across often in my life is laziness (laughs) and finding the laziest way to do something. I had gone to Loyola to learn um, to be a music video director was what I wanted to be. And, you know, there's a lot of equipment and a crew and all of that stuff. And one of our teachers recommended that myself and one of my friends in my class, Gail, that we go and guest host a morning radio show that the university ran. So Mm -hmm. we went to do it and I realized I didn't need to bring anything. I needed to rely on myself, basically. And the questions and thoughts and whatever, but it was so much easier. So I was like, ooh, I kind of like this. So (laughs) we started doing the show that day, and the actual host of the show heard us on air and called into the station and quit. She said we were having more fun than she'd ever had. Let us have the show. And suddenly we had a show that aired every Sunday in Chicago. And because even though it was a university-run station, it was heard by about 3 million people because of where we were located. And uh, we were off and running. Now, most people who start in radio and end up in TV, what did it take to make that, that change over to television after working for a while in radio? What, what attracted you to TV? I think because I came into it wanting to do television initially, and I thought of myself always as behind-the-scenes director working that way. But doing the radio show and my love of interviewing, I had, well, I had left the radio show and was looking for my next opportunity. And you'll, you'll appreciate this. Back in those days, you couldn't transfer from one station to another in the same market. Yes. You had to leave the market and come back in. Right. And I didn't really want to leave, but I was looking for work in other markets. And I sent my audio demo to some friends. And one of them wrote me back and said, you know, you've just been doing television. You just do it on the radio, which I thought was kind of an odd Interesting. comment. But he said, you know, apply to some TV stations. And I applied to about nine stations across the country that were looking for someone. And Houston PBS at the time made me an offer I couldn't refuse, a two-year guaranteed contract that I would be on the air. And you know from this business, that's very unique. And if I was going to pack up and move across the country, I wanted to know I was going to be there a while. And that was 25 years ago. So, Do you remember your first show? <sighs> I don't know exactly what I flew down to Houston and did a pilot episode and then that was kept and I'm not sure who was on the first show. I do believe 
that, and I'm trying to think of his name, and it, it escapes me at the moment. The playwright he wrote, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Edward Albee. Edward Albee, Albee was mm-hmm. the first interview I did. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember, though, if it was on the live show the first night or if it was on the pre-show that I did before. Nervous? It was uncomfortable in regard. You know, no one's ever asked me that. It was uncomfortable in the regards that I didn't have the support staff I was used to. I had my team back in Chicago that had worked on radio with me, and we had done a number of shows outside of just mine. And we had a shorthand of how we, how we worked through the day. And they knew what I needed to be prepped, and I knew how to get my information. And suddenly I'm in a different place where none of that is. And so it was a little – it was nerve-wracking in that regard. When I got to sit down and do the interview – I was fine in the moment, but it was more the anxiety of leading up to it, not having your comfort zone. I really like to be comfortable. I'm a big fan of comfort. Um, Speaking of things that are comfortable and cozy, I have to talk about Downton Abbey, manner of speaking, (laughs) because I was addicted. I was watching it every week. Tell me about that, how that started. I was asked to do a lot of what what in the business we call virtuals. And Mm. virtuals are when you watch a show during pledge drive, Oftentimes, they're coming to you from the studio of your home station. And, but other times, you'll see the stars of the show or somebody specific with someone else in another station. Those are shot and then shared with all the PBS stations. They're called virtuals. And the advantage of it is you can shoot it once with generic talent in a generic studio, and then all the stations can air it, but you have the star on your show. And I do a number of those or have done a number of those. And I was shooting the generics for Celtic Thunder, who are all good friends of mine. And we were in Ireland doing it. And when it got, when we finished taping their new special and doing the breaks for PBS stations, I was in town and it was my birthday weekend. And I decided I was going to fly to Amsterdam for my birthday. I was alone. On the flight there, I started feeling really sick. And when I got to Amsterdam, I just felt terrible. So I set up in my hotel room in Amsterdam and I had brought a digital media player with me and on it was the first two seasons of Downton Abbey. And I laid in my sick bed in Amsterdam while the party was going on around me and I watched two seasons of Downton Abbey. Loved every minute of it. And the biggest frustration was there was no one to talk to when each episode ended. And I thought, you know, there's probably a lot of people that feel the same way. So when I came back to the States, I went to my station. I was like, listen, I think what we need to do is have a show right after Downton Abbey because I bet there's a lot of women who are watching this upstairs and their husbands are downstairs watching sports. And when the show's over, they have no one to talk to or older people or younger people. And they're just not someone to talk to. Uh And so we were in the early end of the early side, I should say, of um, after shows. And so we, we put together a concept of what we wanted to do. And I worked with my director, Matt Brawley, who's worked pretty much on every project with me in television. And we developed a look and a feel and a, a style. And we did Manor Speaking for four seasons. And I think we won a total of six Emmys for it, maybe seven Emmys for it, a bunch of Emmys for it. <laughs> who came up with the name Manor of Speaking? That was Matt. Matt's always been good with the puns. Love it. And who was the most interesting guest of the show, Downton Abbey, that you talked to? I have a sense and a, an appreciation for the realness of things. So when Lady Canavan came on the show, who actually owns High Clear Castle mm-hmm. and lived in High Clear, that was kind of sick. 
to have her on the show. And then the cast members that we got on were wonderful. And um, it was a fun show. I can't off the top of my head think who was the – I mean, Barbara Bush came on the show. Yes, she I was remember. a big fan of the show. That was a charge. Uh, I'll tell you a little funny story if you have, a, if you have time for a Barbara Bush story. Absolutely. She's pretty, pretty savvy lady there. Yep. And she wrote a letter to our station, and she said, you know, I watch Ernie's show every night or every week after Downton Abbey, and I realize he knows and has the right guests for whatever happened in each episode. He must see them ahead of time. How does he see them ahead of time, and how can I? <laughs> Clever. And so, yes, I had advanced copies of the episodes, and I don't know that I've ever said this out loud to anyone, and I would share them with Barbara Bush. And she would send me the most wonderful little notes about them, and uh, she got to watch Downton Abbey early because I got to watch am, it early. And I'm probably going to get in big trouble for that, but there it is. It's out. I'm so glad to share it on Spotlight Conversations. That's I, I, I love asking questions that, well, we can always edit, but, you know, we're going to keep it in. I think it was the fourth or fifth season she came on the show at the top of the season, and uh, it was just a great guest to have. And she said something that really stuck with me, and it was talking about, did you see your experience at the White House at all like the Crawleys see their experience at Downton Abbey and having all this staff around you and that kind of relationship? And she said that both her and George saw themselves as part of the staff. They were there to do a job. And that those other people worked there and did their jobs too, and no one was any different than the other. And I was like, wow. See, it's about yeah. service. And speaking of service, your service, we'll go back to Town Square. You've done a lot of work for the community in Houston. Um, did you start doing that as you got into Houston PBS? What are you most proud of as far as the charity work you've done here? Well, first of all, of course, I'm proud of the work that they all do. I am a small piece in all of this. And if I can help in any way, I appreciate that opportunity. Um, it comes back, it goes back, I should say, to my college days and knowing I wanted to do this stuff. I wanted to be out there in the media doing the interviews, doing the hosting. I loved doing that. And you quickly realize how few people get that opportunity. There's a lot of wonderful, undiscovered talent that will go on never being discovered. There's so few opportunities. It seems funny now in today's day and age. It seems like everyone can have a show and everyone is somewhere. But years back, it wasn't like that. And still to have a certain platforms that people aspire to, very few people get that opportunity. And to have been fortunate enough, simply lucky enough, to get the platform that I've been allowed to play in for all these years, I really owe something back to the community that surrounds me. And if anything that I have gotten because of doing that can help aid anybody else, it's not a choice. It's a responsibility of mine to do that. So I'm there to help when I can, how I can. And I, I just always hope that my contribution helps them either raise more money or raise more awareness or whatever. And uh, that's kind of how I look at it. And we thank you, too, because there's so many that you're a part of. Um, going back to PBS for just a minute, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but I didn't want to forget anything because I know you're busy and I wanted to get as many questions in as I could. Um, Susie Orman's show, um, The Finance Expert, you and she get together a couple times a year. The true story of how that all started. And this once again goes to prove I am truly lazy <laughs> and cheap. 
<laughs> so I had been home for Christmas and my mom and I went to some store and they had like a sale rack and they had like a couple dress shirts that were ridiculously the wrong size for me, way too big. And they were cheap. So I bought them. <laughs> I come back to our station. It's in January. Susie Orman's going to be a guest on the show I was hosting at the time. She had come in to do the show. She was just starting to get really big. She had one PBS special and uh, was already quite quite well known, but wasn't quite the Susie we know today. Uh-huh. And I was to interview her, and I didn't have the right color shirt to wear. And one of those humongous oversized shirts was there. And I took a giant metal clamp you know it was like paper clip clamps yes yes and i that to tighten the collar of my shirt in the back in the and back it on uh-huh and i came out to meet Susie, and Susie was looking at me and she looked around and she was like what is that and i'm like oh it's a clamp the shirt's too big but it was such a great deal i couldn't resist it and she was like oh my god you need to learn more about money ernie and we've struck up a wonderful friendship in that moment and when she came time for her to do her next National Pledge special, she was like, I want that guy from Houston who put a metal clip to make his shirt fit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they took me on. Actually, they took myself and Doris, who was my co-host in Houston at the time. Mm-hmm. And they flew us out there to do uh, the first Susie Orman live coast-to-coast pledge event, which was a big deal. We aired across the country at the same time. It wasn't pre-recorded, and so all the stations carried us live. And that was my first one with Susie. And I think that was in, it was either 99 or 2000. And I have done every one of her PBS specials since, except for the one show, Women in Money. She felt the show's about women and money. She should be surrounded by women. She's already surrounded by money. So (laughs) I sat that one out. But uh, yeah, we've been a team ever since. So every show I have to ask, do you still have the clip? And do you still wear a really big shirt? No, 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 no. The scary thing is now I probably would fit in those shirts. Oh, no. Well, it's savvy, though. It's very, it's financially savvy what you did. And kind of, it's like kismet because, you know, that's a smart, economical thing to do. Instead of running around trying to make it perfect, you made it work. Right. Yeah. So. It worked for me. me on with Susie. And we've had, we've had a great time together and I've gotten to know her over the years. And yeah, I, I've been very, once again, I've been very fortunate. What's in the future for Ernie Manus? Good question. Uh, I often have joked with my friends, every time I think I've played the last act of my career and I'm just going to fade away, something else kind of falls into my lap. I had thought before a manner of speaking, you know, I had I'd been on air here for 15, 16 years. I figured, you know what, I've had a really good run. Things will be okay, you know. And then Downton Abbey fell into my lap in manner of speaking. And then I thought, okay, we wrap that up. Pretty much we're at the end now. We've done it all. And now Town Square is here. And we're back on at the top of our game again. So I'm really bad at predicting what's going to happen next. Uh, one thing I miss, and I hope it'll start up again, is I, I get to tour with Al Pacino. And we do a show called Pacino One Night Only. And since COVID and he was very busy right before COVID and then COVID, we haven't been able to do the show. Uh And so I hope once everything settles down again, we can get back on the road and do a few more of those. I always enjoy doing that. Now tell me a little bit about the show. What would somebody expect? It's a stage interview, not staged, but Mm -hmm. an on stage interview with uh, 
Al Pacino and myself, and uh, he—he's never in the past. He hadn't really done a lot of interviews, right? And they thought, well, you know, maybe people want to hear from Al. Uh, he started this tour. I, he, they stopped the fourth stop of the tour, and they came to Houston. Early on, they realized it was better if he had someone on stage with him than him out there alone. Mm. And so when they came to Houston, they asked <laughs> another funny story. They asked if I would do the interview. And, of course, you're not going to turn it down doing an interview with Al Pacino. And so about a week before the interview, I was in my notorious bike accident, my cycling accident, and I broke both of my hands. So I was laid up, and I decided, well, what better time than now? And I watched every Al Pacino movie I could get my hands on. (laughs) And then it was a week later we did the show. And so I was in my hand cast still did the show, and my assistant was backstage, and as soon as I walked off stage, he was there with my pain pill and a glass of water, because I had to keep those going, because it was, it was rough. Two weeks later, Pacino's people called me, and they said, you know, Al really enjoyed the experience, and we would love for you to do more of these with him, if you'd be willing to travel and do them with him. There's about four or five of us, maybe three or four of us around the country that get called in to do these with him. And it depends where you are in the country and all that. And so I said, great. Is there any, anything you want me to know? And they said, yeah, just do exactly what you did in Houston. Don't remember anything I did in Houston because I was on all those pink <laughs> so Every time I've done the show since, I've always wondered, was this like what it was like in Houston? I have no idea. <laughs> Don't you think that people that are in show business, the peripherals of it and in, in front of the screen and back of the screen, a lot of times they create their own luck because they love it so much. And that worry part of, oh, that was a great thing, but what's my next great thing going to be? You just love it so much that the next big opportunity does come up. And why is that? I think part of what you're saying in there is the answer is that I think because you love it so much, it becomes the next big thing because your joy, your excitement about it feeds it. And so if I think people that are jaded quickly lose opportunity, but it may be they're given the same things others are, but because they come with it without that joy and that excitement, that it doesn't materialize itself the way it should. I remember back even in my Chicago days, I remember being outside of the radio station and we were right in downtown, the Magnificent Mile, and thinking mm-hmm. to myself, if I ever get to the point where I don't feel the thrill of getting to talk to these people, I should stop doing the job. Because that is what I think I can bring to the interview is the joy and the excitement and the respect and the honor of being there to get to talk to these people and that that is what's been able to help me do the job I've done all these years. And I think if I I ever woke up and thought, oh, I have to talk to Al Pacino today, I shouldn't be the one talking to Al Pacino. (laughs) Ernie Manus, I love your outlook on life. Houston PBS TV, how do folks find out what you're up to, what you're doing, um, all the shows you have? in the works where do they go i'm all over social media which it's kind of weird because it was ernie on tv which makes no sense now that i'm on the radio but i've been ernie on tv for so long you can find me there on twitter and on instagram or just ernie manus on facebook 
And that's probably the best place to look or visit HoustonPublicMedia.org to see everything our station is doing. And I pop up there quite a bit. I can't wait to hear what you're going to be doing next. So I'll be back. I'll be talking with you very soon. Okay. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed. Subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcasts or your favorite platform. Thanks for tuning in.